Well, hey, thanks for being here, whether you're here in the room in Waukesha, Crosstown in uh, Pewaukee, or if you're part of our online campus. I want to thank you for being part of our service today. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm Dave. I'm the campus pastor over at Pewaukee, and I love what I do at Pewaukee, but I also love having a chance to, to be here and to, to speak with you today, too. Now, this weekend really marks uh, an ending and a beginning. We're going to be wrapping up our series entitled The New You, but we're beginning the Christmas season and beginning Advent today. Advent's a great time. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of preparation, of anticipation, as well as hope. In the new next message series entitled Advent, we're going to prepare together for the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I encourage you to join River Glen this year during uh, what we call an Advent devotional and do this together. You can do the daily devotional either as a family or you can fly solo on this. However you decide to do our Advent devotional, all you have to do is go to the Uversion app and click and, and connect to and search for Advent, and it's all going to be right there. It's fun. It's interesting. It's going to take you a couple minutes each day to do that particular devotional. There's also some resources today out at the Connect wall and on our Christmas page, so you can get as many pieces of information as you need. It's a great way for you to stay focused on what Christmas is all about. So go ahead and get started this Tuesday, December 1st. Well, I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. Did everybody enjoy a, a good dinner this weekend? Okay. Well, this year, Thanksgiving gatherings, they, they tended to be smaller, so some of you looked for alternatives to the typical large turkey dinner. Oh, come on, that's funny. <laughs> Unless we're all songbird lovers, and you can be hating on me for that one. Not quite sure. But turkey lovers out there, do you have a preferred way that you prepare and cook your turkey? Got any favorites out there? Well, a few of us guys here at River Glen, we had a friendly conversation that turned into a, a rather uh, heated competition. And we set out to prove the best way to cook a turkey. So traditional oven roasting, that was John Howard's way to roll. John, uh, better luck next year. Garrett Johnston, he opted for the high-risk, high-reward of deep-frying his turkey. Uh, <laughs> uh, Garrett, you've got to thaw the turkey out first. Both of these guys decided to start light it up just a little bit early. Now, I myself, I'm a huge fan of smoked turkey. You've got to take your time. You've got to smoke it slow and low using sweet apple and cherry wood. And then you've got to make sure that you rub the whole turkey with olive oil and coarse ground salt. I'm getting hungry just thinking about this. The skin turns this beautiful golden brown crust that just seals in all the juices. It is the most flavorful, moist turkey ever, usually. It just is a little dry, right? Well, we hope that your turkey turned out better this year than our turkeys did. Now today I'm going to be running the anchor leg as we wrap up our message series entitled The New You. For the past six weeks, we've been exploring this idea of how we live like a new person. The Apostle Paul penned three of the greatest, most impactful chapters of the Bible in Romans 6, 7, and 8. In week one, we learned that a new life in Jesus is ours for the taking when we place our trust and our faith in Him. 
Next, we experience baptisms as we witness people say, I do, to Jesus as we celebrated new life through baptism. Now, baptism is that, that first step, the beginning of learning how to live a new life. However, a battle continues inside of all of us, a, a battle between good and evil. Our sinful nature, it doesn't just disappear the moment we put our trust in Jesus. So we learned how to fight the sin battle, to sin less. Now, Jesus, he frees us from shame that we have from our past. We're not defined by what we do wrong, but instead we're defined by what Jesus did right. And we win that battle against our sin nature when we set our minds on what the Holy Spirit desires for each and every one of us. And then finally, last week, Ben shared one of the most powerful promises in Scripture found in Romans 8:28, which says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Ben challenged us with an important question. That question is, are we leaning our ladder of hope on God's promise? So what we're going to do today is we're going to build on this as we wrap up our study of Romans 8. Now, Romans 8.31 poses the question, what then shall we say in response to this? Now, Paul reassures us of God's promise in verse 32 when Paul says, if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Paul's response God's promise has to be one of the most powerful, clear passages in the entire Bible. Now, Paul didn't pull any punches. He wrote with passion. He wrote with conviction. His teachings were profound yet practical. His enthusiasm, his devotion for the cause of Christ is absolutely unmistakable. And I've often wondered what it would sound like to be in the room with Paul as he was concluding Romans 8. Perhaps it sounded something like this. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of his chosen? Who would dare to even point a finger? Jesus died for us, and he raised a life for us. Yes, he did. And you know what? Right now, right now at this very moment, he's in the presence of God, and he's sticking up for us. Do you really think anyone is going to be able to drive a, a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? Really? No way. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, they kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. For for I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor 
anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in all of Romans, that, that chunk of Scripture, it really sticks out. It's, it's different. It's more passionate. It's, it's filled with exclamation points and questions and boldness. Paul is pulling out all of the stops. He's trying to communicate the love of God. Paul knows if we just get this, it would change everything for us. So the big idea that I want you to walk away today with is this. God wants us to be more than conquerors. Now, we're going to take the Scripture apart and see if we can wrap our minds around what Paul is trying to tell us. Now, did you notice that Paul asks lots of questions in this Scripture? The first one comes up in verse 31, and that is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you might have a mental list of the people in your life who try to stand against you. Well, stop for a moment and just put this into perspective. God is for you. He's for you. So who can stand against you? I mean, God's love is there. It steps up. It, it protects. It defends us. Now, some people are going to oppose us, but they cannot prevail against us because God is for us. He wants us to prevail. He wants us to win. He wants us to be more than conquerors. Now, the love of a father, the love of a father is pretty special. I have six children, and I love them all fiercely. And it doesn't matter how old they are. I love them, and I defend them when someone stands against them. My love for my children, it does not diminish over the years. So just think for a moment how much stronger God's love for you is. I don't think we can ever totally understand it, this side of heaven. Now, in verse 32, Paul continues, He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul makes the argument that God made the greatest sacrifice that he could. He sacrificed his son Jesus for us. So why would he hesitate? Why would he hesitate to graciously give us lesser things? I mean, he didn't spare his son for us. There's nothing more valuable to God than Jesus. So it makes sense that God would be willing to spare anything else out of love for us. In verse 33, the questions continue. Who will bring any charges or any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, God is the one who justifies. He's the one who has the right to bring charges against us. God's the only one because he sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, no one else could do it or would do it for us, only God. In verse 34, it says, Jesus died for us, he rose from the grave, and he intercedes for us. Jesus was condemned, and he died a horrible death on the cross, so he, we would not have to face the punishment for our sins. He rose from the grave. He conquered death, and he now he intercedes for us. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he speaks on our behalf. He speaks in our defense. He's not there to judge. He's not there to condemn those of us who have put our trust and faith in him. 
He's our friend and defender. And in verse 35, yet another question, who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul had a lot of choices as to the words he could have used for love, and he chose the word agape, the highest of all words for love. Agape love, it's, it's selfless. It, it doesn't ask for anything in return. It's a very committed form of love, and it's not based on what we do. So God loves us with this unchanging, undeserved, unqualified love. God doesn't say, Dave, I love you because fill in the blank. No, that's the way people love. We say things like, I love you because you're funny, you're smart, you lead our family with strength. No, God doesn't love because, he just loves. So why did Paul pose all of these questions to the Romans? I think Paul wanted to totally engage his audience and convince them beyond a doubt that absolutely nothing or absolutely no one can ever come between them and the love of Christ. Paul continued in verse 37. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what does Paul really mean by more than conquerors? A conqueror, by definition, is one who wins. They subdue people using force. They vanquish their enemies, often brutally annihilating them physically, emotionally, spiritually. History books are filled with the exploits of conquerors. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, to name just a few. Now, let's take Attila the Hun, for example. By the way, that's a name you never hear in baby books anymore. Don't know why. Attila conquered much of Central Asia, but was eventually defeated by the Romans. And Attila died on his wedding night, apparently from a severe nosebleed after a night of binge drinking. Genghis Khan fared no better. He was defeated by his own brother after a medieval version of family feud. And he died. He died from injuries suffered after falling off his horse. And that brings us to Julius Caesar. Caesar was famous for saying, Veni, Veni, Vici. Who knows your Latin? Say it if you know it. You don't know it, okay? I came, I saw, I conquered. Members of his own government conspired against him, stabbing him to death. These conquerors, they had a lot in common. Their kingdoms were earthly, they were eventually defeated by another conqueror, and they all died. No storybook endings, no, he lived happily ever after. Entire empires crumbled, people suffered, and they died at the hands of these earthly conquerors. No human conqueror ever got out of this life alive. Matthew summed it up very well when he said, live by the sword, die by the sword. Now, Paul claims that we are more than conquerors. He challenges us to be more, more like the greatest of all conquerors, Jesus Christ. His kingdom, eternal. He was not, nor will he ever be defeated by any other conqueror, and he lives forever. Now, these earthly conquerors, they had to focus on mere survival so they could live to fight yet another day. But God wants more for us, more than just mere survival. He wants to thrive, to thrive in, through a relationship with him. Paul himself had a lot of personal experience with hardship. During his 30-plus years of ministry, 
Paul was imprisoned on multiple occasions. He was shipwrecked three times. He was bitten by a snake, flogged. The list goes on and on and on. Paul describes his trials this way. He says, we were hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. It's almost as if Paul is taunting the worldly kingdom. Come on, is that all you got? With God on my side, I can handle whatever you throw my way. Through it all, Paul did more than survive. He thrived as he relentlessly continued preaching among the Gentiles. Paul was more than a conqueror. Now, this, this notion, this idea of merely surviving as the goal, it's pretty common in our society today. TV shows like Alone or The World's Toughest Race, what they do is they place participants in difficult situations, pitting them against nature, sometimes against other competitors. And they take on each challenge with the ultimate goal being to survive. And almost all fail. Now, have you noticed, though, that the winners, they've got a different attitude. These people strive to thrive. They endure hardships with a positive outlook that almost screams, bring it on. So why are some people motivated to thrive while others aim only to survive? I think the story of U.S. Navy pilot Captain Jerry Coffey is a great illustration of the difference between a survival mindset and a thrival one. In 1966, Captain Coffey was flying a mission over North Vietnam when his fighter plane was hit by enemy fire. He crash-landed in the China Sea, and he was captured by the Viet Cong. Coffey spent the next seven years as a prisoner of war, often tortured, starved, and held in solitary confinement. His home was a six-foot by three-foot cell. And he kept asking himself the question, why? Why did this happen to me? His doubt sent him into a spiral of utter despair. Well, then one morning, he made the conscious decision to change his self-talk and to change his mental focus. He noticed that a previous resident to his cell had scratched the words, God equals strength on the cell wall. That simple truth made all the difference to Jerry Coffey. He dug deep. He focused on his faith as the key to survival. Faith in himself, faith in his fellow POWs, faith in his country, but most importantly, faith in God. He looked at each day as a new opportunity to improve himself, to thrive, even in these horrible prison conditions. He walked seven miles each day, six feet, turn, repeat, many miles each day. He prayed constantly. He memorized, recited, and shared scripture. Captain Coffey's liberty had been taken away by his captors, but they could not deny him his faith in God and his intentional choice to focus on his faith. It was this focus, this faith, that allowed Coffey and many of his fellow POWs to feel the love of God and to become more than conquerors through Jesus. Every day, he prayed Psalm 23, and he put special emphasis on the following words. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I lack nothing. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Now looking back on his imprisonment, Captain Coffey did not grow bitter. Instead, in fact, he grew better. In his own words, he said, I vowed to find the purpose in my adversity and my pain and come home better, tougher, and stronger in every way. It was Coffey's faith in God that gave him the strength to endure seven years in North Vietnam's worst prisons. He never lost hope. His Air Force survival training, that rule of three that Ben mentioned last week, that guided him. If you remember it, you can live three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without air, but you can't last three seconds without hope. Everything else is irrelevant without hope. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Jerry Coffey faced all of these, and no one, nothing separated him from the love of Christ. Now, some of us might buy into this idea that if we do stuff that makes us lovable, then God is going to love and bless us on this earth with some prosperity. We might look at our neighbor and think, oh my gosh, look at that beautiful new Lexus. They must have done a lot of good deeds, so God showed his love to them. No. No, not at all. God's love for us, it's not dependent on us doing good stuff, trying to earn his love. Don't fall into the trap of interpreting our circumstances as a measure of God's love. For example, you might say, hey, I've enjoyed a good life. God must love me a lot. Or I've suffered heartbreak and setbacks my whole life. God must hate me. No. Remember, nothing will separate you from the love of God nothing. Don't misinterpret. Don't try to explain away the hard times or to rationalize the good times. Don't try to measure God's love by saying things like, look what I have or don't have. That's how much God loves me. If you want a yardstick to measure the love of God, don't look at your circumstances. Look to the cross. Now, several years ago, I made this mistake of comparing circumstances and judging God's love. In 2009, I traveled to Kenya as part of a, a mission group from River Glen. Even though I was well prepared on what to expect in the slums of Nairobi's Mathari Valley, I held on to some preconceived falsehoods. I saw myself as favored, loved by God, because of my status as an American who was wealthy in comparison to the people that I was meeting. I felt pity for them. Now, I'd like to say it was empathy, but in all honesty, it was pity. I was proud of myself when I donated supplies for the school that, that River Glen had helped start. Well, God found a really interesting way to get my attention and to set me straight. Midway through the trip, I was asked to speak during one of the Sunday worship services in the community. And I thought, what passage of Scripture should I share with these impoverished people? What message of hope would inspire and bless them? And I fretted about that for several days, and I finally landed on Romans 8, 38 through 39. I thought, that will certainly speak of God's love. So that Sunday morning, 
I read Paul's words of encouragement, pausing often while my English was translated into Swahili. And I read, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I had observed the deplorable living conditions in Mathari's, in the Mathari Valley, and I believed that the hardship suffered by these people, those hardships were a hindrance to receiving God's love. I thought somehow God must love me more than these people because he's blessed me with health and prosperity. And considering their plight, I was sure that the audience that morning, they were going to be uplifted by my message. Well, they were impacted by God's, by Paul's words, but there was an unexpected little twist to all this. A few days later, I was approached by one of our Kenyan hosts, and we sat in the shade taking an afternoon work break. We talked about our families, compared family photos of loved ones, and then after a long pause, she said something that has stuck with me all of these years. She said, I pray for you. Coming from America, you have so many burdens to carry, so many things to worry about, things that you need to protect, so many distractions. Here, life is simple. We don't have many possessions, but God truly loves us. Nothing distracts us from that simple truth. And here I was. I was feeling sorry for the Kenyans due to their lack of earthly wealth. And this woman, this woman was feeling sorry for me because of my burdens, things that distracted me from the love of God. Our life circumstances, they should not be the measuring stick for God's love. My Kenyan friends, they are more than conquerors. Captain Jerry Coffey, more than a conqueror. God's intention for you and for me is to be more than a conqueror. Here's what I'd like you to do this upcoming week. I want you to read Romans 8, 28 through 39, and read it every single day this upcoming week. It's going to take you about a minute and a half to two minutes. And as you read it, just reflect. Let those words soak into your heart and soul, because Paul is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. And then answer each of those questions that Paul poses to yourself. Even answer them out loud. Do that every day this week, please. Now let's go back to Romans 8:37 for just a moment. It said, "We are more than conquerors through him who loved us." Notice it says "loved," not "loves." Now in the original language, the, the past tense form of the word "love points to one place where the love of God was forever proven and demonstrated without question at all. There's no doubt that Paul was thinking of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. God's love is enduring. It's constant. It was. It is. It will always be. The cross is the guarantee. It's that ultimate proof of God's love. We need to only look to the cross for Jesus' unconditional love for all of us who trust in him. That's why each week we take time to, to think about the cross when we take communion together. 
Now, if you didn't have an opportunity to pick up a double communion cup on the way in today, just go back to the tables at the back of the auditorium and pick one of those up. If you're watching at home, just grab some juice or other beverage, bread or crackers. Our communion, our communion is open to anyone who follows after Jesus. Now, I know that we can't fully understand the love of God and the sacrifice of the cross, but that's to me why it makes it so wonderful. The bread symbolizes Christ's body broken for us, and the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for us. So let's thank him that we never will be unloved. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Lord, we are more than conquerors through you. You are for us, so nothing can stand against us. Your love for us, it's unconditional. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But Lord, thank you for loving us as you do. Father, we face challenges and hardships every day, and it's easy to become discouraged and, and, and cynical when it comes to the everyday things that we face, the new mountains that we need to climb. So, Lord, we're tired. We need a renewing in our spirit. Strengthen our faith in you. Encourage us to go beyond survival, to thrive. Lord, we're convinced that neither death nor life, neither COVID nor cancer, neither fear or frustration, nor anger or loneliness, nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from your love. In your precious name we pray, amen.